0: Touch with technology with tech stuff from howstuffworks.com.
1: Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland, and joining me again is Chuck Bryant from Stuff You Should Know. Howdy do. Howdy do to you, Chuck. Uh, if you tuned in to our last episode, You heard the beginning of the epic tale of the rise and fall of Atari. We talked about Atari's founding up to the point where its founder, Nolan Bushnell, sells the company to Warner Communications. And now we're going to talk about where things went from that point forward.
0: Yeah, I should say I almost said hello by doing my impression of the home 2600 version of Pac-Man. But I didn't do it. I appreciate that. I'll do that when we talk about it in 10 minutes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We will get there. So 1977, this, uh, we were teasing it at the end of the last episode. This is when Atari releases the revolutionary, and I, I mean that sincerely. I am oh, yeah. not being snarky. Revolutionary Atari video computer system, aka the Atari VCS, aka the Atari 2600.
0: Yeah, and where, I didn't even know, but I saw that you researched where the name 2600 came from.
1: Yeah, so, all right, when you're a company and you make stuff, you give units part names, sure. right? So like in a hardware store, you might have a typical, like a type of screw of a certain length. It's a Phillips head screw, and to describe the whole thing would take you like five lines of text because you're talking about the length, the type of screw head, yeah. how, you know how, how close the treads are, or you could just give it a part name. Yeah. And then you say I need 15 of HCX blah 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 blah. Right. Well the part name for the this uh unit this this system was the CX2600. Ah. So they just said, "All right, we're just going to call it the Atari 2600
0: because it sounds, you know, futuristic and right. cool and."
1: Uh, so. Yeah, whereas the rest of us are thinking like, "Where were Atari's 1 through 2599?"
0: <laughs> I, <laughs> like, I always thought that
1: yeah, so this this is just an identifier that that makes it easy to refer to a part. Now, in this case it just made a really compelling sounding device. Uh and it goes on sale in the United States for 199 on the low end. Yeah. Uh, the high end was 229.
0: Sure. It shipped with uh, two joysticks. Yep. Uh I guess the 229 version came with the paddles.
1: I guess so. I had that. I had the paddles. Yeah, yeah, I had the
0: paddles too. Yeah. There's no other way to play Breakout properly yeah. without battles. Right. Um, and uh, it came with combat. Yeah. It came with one game, which uh, was really, I don't, can't remember actually how many variations there were.
1: Right, because they had the tanks, they had the airplanes, the oh,
0: jets. Well, I told you in the last episode, my brother and I were playing combat last week at mm-hmm. his house on his 2600. And we were kind of cracking up at, um, you know, like here's one version where it's the two tanks. And then the next version is is the same thing but they're invisible. Right. And the next version is it's the same thing but the bullets bounce off the walls. So that can, was
1: my favorite one.
0: Yeah, where you could bank shots into yeah, each other. Yeah. And the invisible. Or you could hit
1: yourself.
0: <laughs> oh, I didn't I Yeah, think I knew that.
1: if you if you bank it if you bank it so that it it bounces back and hit goes through your tank, it could actually hit yourself and that was really I did frustrating. I didn't know
0: that. Yeah, and then they of course they had the air combat games. Yep. Uh, of, you know, you could be fighter pilots or you could be biplanes or you could be that giant, whatever that was. Right. And there were clouds in some versions. Yep. You fly behind clouds, yep. not in other versions. So they managed to really milk combat for many, many different versions of essentially the same game.
1: Yeah. And as I recall, the way you would play that is there were physical switches on the Atari itself that you, you could manipulate and get different versions as well. Yeah. Or was there one that was it like a? It wasn't a menu system, right? It was no, like, it was a
0: menu. Uh, it was a toggle on the front of the game, that right? You would just toggle through the different versions,
1: which is kind of interesting. Like, like it was the actual console itself that had physical switches in the up or down position, and that's how you could determine yeah. which version you were playing. And yep, um, yeah. So those days of having that video screen with the menu where it's like start, load game, save game didn't exist. No, no. <laughs> and, and once that game, like we mentioned in the previous episode, once you turn that console off, all that information disappears because it's only in read-only memory.
0: That's right. And uh, I think any of us that got three-quarters of the way through Raiders of the Lost Ark Oof. and uh, someone accidentally flipped the uh, reset switch. Oh. Bad, bad things. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, man. And that, and that game, was one of the most complicated Atari games that I can recall. Yeah, we were talking
0: about it. Yeah, we'll We'll we'll, save that.
1: We'll save it. We'll we'll talk on our reflections of some of our favorite games uh, later on. But technically, the system was ready for shipping a year before it came out. But Atari sat on it. And the reason they sat on it was because of something we mentioned in the last episode, that that big uh, uh, agreement they had with Magnavox. Yeah. Part of that agreement was... They would give Magnavox the rights to anything Atari produced within that year. And so they thought, well, if we wait a little longer.
0: Save us a lot of money.
1: We yeah. don't. Yeah. We won't give them the rights to the Atari 2600. We'll, sure. we'll, we'll retain them ourselves. So they they sat on it and released it a year late. Uh, and originally they were only going to create 10 titles for this thing. They thought that the market for it would be something that would last two or three years. Yeah. And they would just produce it for that before moving on to something else. And therefore you would have more flexibility. Yeah. Because you could switch out titles. But they thought, well, there's, there's no real market here. We're not going to go beyond that. But some of the programmers started playing around with it and said, wait a minute. We have the opportunity here to make stuff that has never been in the arcades yeah. that, that could be totally new, groundbreaking. There's a lot more potential with this hardware.
0: Yeah. Like here's where the money is. Yeah. Fellas is- Yeah. How about 200 titles that you can sell for... $30 a piece. Yeah.
1: And so they said, this sounds like a good idea.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, but uh, Atari was not, um, the 2600 was not a smash hit right out of the gate. No, it actually. The first couple of years were sort of lackluster because people didn't really get that it was more than Pong. Right. At first.
1: And Warner Communications didn't really market it well either. So there was was some some downfalls in the marketing side. They weren't a video
0: game company. They didn't really know what to do with it.
1: And it was expensive. I mean, you know, $199, that, that doesn't sound like it's that expensive today, but keep in mind, we're talking 1970s money, you know, that's like more than 700 bucks. Yeah. For this thing that at least at first was only going to play 10 titles. That's not, that's not a big selling point. For someone who's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shell out the better part of a grand to get a machine that can play 10 games.
0: Yeah, I remember my brother and I, how, um, you know, how you would submit the Christmas list to the, to the parents. Yes. Uh, here's what Scott wants. Here's what Chuck wants. We had to share, um, we had to both go in, all in on Atari. We were like, this Christmas, all both of us want together is this one $200 item. And my parents were like, all right, well, you better play it.
1: It, It's funny because I actually got my Atari Fairly close to the, um, not, not too long before the great video game crash, which we will get to, which meant that the price had actually come down because there was a lot of competition in yeah. that space. I and got it so, pretty early on.
0: Yeah. I, I wish I, I, I could remember what year, but, um, yeah, I don't think it was 78, but I bet, I bet it was 80.
1: Yeah. My, I was probably closer to 81, 82 for me. Uh, so in 1978, that's when Nolan Bushnell leaves Atari.
0: Yeah, and we talked a little bit in the last episode about the, the corporate structure at Warner's and um, how it just did not jibe at all yeah. with these uh, creative sort of pot-smoking hippie de- game designers. Yeah. And um, he just got more and more upset and discontented and uh, or discontent.
1: Discontent. He felt discontentment. Patient.
0: <laughs> To where he basically tried to get himself fired to, and and, and, and eventually succeeded. did. Yeah.
1: <laughs> he had a huge fight with a, a Warner executive in front of the board of directors. Yeah. And that was that. He was told to pack his things and go. So he leaves um, and –
0: uh It was a big bummer after that. I mean yeah. it was already sort of a bummer, but him leaving was a, a very symbolic uh deal for Atari's – sort of the downfall of Atari.
1: Yeah, some people refer to the sale of Atari to Warner as the first quote unquote death of Atari. Yeah. Some people refer to Nolan's departure as the first death,
0: but at any rate they're kind of tied, I think.
1: It was yeah, it's a big change. I mean, they they did happen fairly close to one another in time.
0: Yeah, he didn't last long there. Uh
1: there was a CEO the new CEO of Atari is Ray Kassar.
0: Yeah, he, th- he was not well liked by no. the, uh, developers. No, in fact, to say the least. <laughs> there, he,
1: his name would be used for a famous Atari title later That's on. That's right. What was it? Uh, Yar's Revenge. That's right. It was just Ray backwards. That's pretty so good. Yar's Revenge. And then apparently, uh, uh, Kassar said, that's clever.
0: <laughs> like, oh, really? That,
1: so it must have been a whew moment. For the, right. Uh, <laughs> at any rate, uh, Al, Al Alcorn, uh, Harry Jenkins, and Roger Hector at this time begin to work on a handheld electronic game system that used holography as its display. So, so a holographic display, uh, and it was called the Cosmos. I haven't heard of that. Yeah. It was a handheld thing. It was supposed to have nine games uh, with all the game information actually on the device itself, but you would switch cartridges out because the cartridges had the information for the holographic display.
0: Yeah. I had a Merlin. Do you remember that? (laughs) I do remember the Merlin. The little red. It looked like a telephone. (laughs) Yeah. And then I can't remember the name of it. Again, if someone knows this, I know you'll uh, write in. It was a a really great handheld um, that had a dial on the bottom, and it was about nine inches tall and about three inches wide and it had a screen Mm -hmm. and it had cartridges you load It had like breakout huh i can't remember the name of it but it was really advanced for the time
1: yeah uh i did a a tech stuff episode a series of them actually about uh a lot of the consoles and handheld consoles that came out during this time um which are fairly extensive but not exhaustive we didn't I mean, yeah. You can't cover everything. There was just No, too there's much. a lot of
0: no-name ones that just yeah. sort of came and went.
1: Yeah, ones that or or they had like uh you know a very limited release in South America right. and, and there're like <laughs> three people in the United States who have one. That kind of thing.
0: The Guaro. Yeah. Uh
1: I can't remember, I think I want to say that they were both named after cats and one of our one of our <laughs> listeners drew me as one of the two cat uh characters. Using this, and nice. Lauren was the other one. Awesome. <laughs> so I've I've got a I've got that picture somewhere. Uh, 1979, one of the great arcade games of all time comes out from Atari: Asteroids. That's right. That's you know, fantastic game, addictive
0: gameplay. A one that still holds up. Yeah, a very challenging still. Once you start flying that spaceship around, right. it yeah. was tough to manage. Well, cause,
1: cause it actually used inertia and momentum, right? Yeah. You, you had to actually turn your ship and thrust in the opposite direction to stop uh-huh. yourself. Get you from... a plan
0: ahead. Yeah. Uh, the asteroids when you would, when you shoot them would break apart into different directions. Yep. And if you were flying around and if you got going too fast and those asteroids, you start shooting them, you, broke apart into little yeah, sticks very quickly. You had to quickly. have that
1: little <laughs> teleport button that you could use like once a game. and
0: <laughs> Yeah, but that would often drop you right in the path of a big asteroid theme. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily a,
1: a, a way to, to save yourself. This is also when Atari would release a game for the home game market that, that Chuck, I think you have a few things to say about. Uh, it's a little game called Adventure.
0: Oh, sure. <laughs> Let's talk about my favorite thing ever. Yes, please
1: do. Let's do that.
0: Yes, Adventure was... Uh, was created by Warren Robinette. Yep, and it—I uh, played it yesterday online. Yeah, um, had a great time. Still holds up. Well,
1: <laughs> maybe it's nostalgia playing a little. little nostalgia is definitely playing a role.
0: <laughs> it does hold up in a way, though. But it, it when you look at it now, and uh, if you're younger, you will scoff at the square that represents the the knight and the arrow that represents a sword and, yeah. the, and the ducks that represent the dragons. dragons yeah um but at the time it was uh there was nothing like it out yeah. there it was the first game that put you uh it was the first first person adventure game
1: yeah it's the it's considered the first action adventure game ever it it spawned a genre of games
0: yeah and but i don't think we can get across like when we were kids playing this game we didn't see a square, and an arrow, Right. we had imagination to go along with it. Yeah. And it sounds corny, but you really did, in your mind's eye, see the dragon, the red dragon coming at you, and you felt like you were the knight, and you had this great big sword. So it really played on kids' imagination, which, um I mean, I love the games now. Don't yeah. get me wrong. I'm not saying you should go back and do things like this anymore.
1: Although there are some games that have come out recently that have more of this old school oh, really? uh, feel to it. And they're phenomenal.
0: Oh, like what?
1: Uh, For example, if you want a game that looks like it was made back in the early, this would be more like in the early computer game era. Yeah. Papers, Please. Now, let me tell you what Papers, Please is, and you're not going to believe that this Uh is a game. In Papers, Please, you play the part of a border patrol agent who (laughs) reviews (laughs) documentation of people passing from one Soviet-style nation to a different Soviet-style nation. But it's good? It's fantastic! Wow. And it's done in this style. Like I said, it's more of a computer game style than the video game, like the home video game system. So it's like a retro thing? Very retro, but the gameplay is phenomenal. The, the style is perfect. The oppressive Soviet music and, and, uh, and game, the writing in the game is fine. So, we're seeing some people who are kind of going back to it, maybe a little later in the, the development cycle than adventure, but they're going back to those basics of gameplay is really important and imagination can make up for a lot of, of, uh, what other people would see as like a drawback. You know, this idea that the graphics are not, uh, realistic or, 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 you know, they, they're very abstract. Yeah these days i'm I'm seeing more developers say that's not a problem, right You know that's something we can embrace if the game is
0: good, yeah, exactly and, and adventure was that i mean uh there are three big things that adventure brought to the table yeah. um there was a large space for the first time, right. Uh, I you think could 30 from, rooms in eight regions.
1: Yeah, you move from screen to screen and it would take you into a new region with yep. new new things that you had to maneuver around.
0: Uh, You could pick up objects and drop them and move them around yep. and use them and manipulate them. That one, was a new thing. One
1: at a time, as I recall.
0: Well, which turned out to be brilliant because Raiders you, of the Lost Ark made things very convoluted.
1: Right, yeah. It meant that you didn't have to have an inventory screen. All the action could take place within that game. like. You had to plan out what you needed. Like, are you going to need the sword on that next screen? If you don't, do you want to move the... The whole point of the game was getting the chalice...
0: Yeah, um, to the gold castle.
1: To the, exactly. So you might not need your sword, so dropping the sword and moving the chalice further along might be the best thing to do. But there was also another element that could really mess with you if you... if the you bat. Yes, the oh, bat.
0: <laughs> yeah, there was a bat that would fly around, and there were several levels of, of difficulty. Right. Three, I think. Yeah. And I think the bat came in on number two.
1: I think you're right.
0: Um, But either on level two or three, the bat would just fly around, and you would be so close to getting what you needed. And it took work. This game took yeah. time. There was no timer, which was another genius move. Um And it would take a lot of figuring out to, to find your way through these mazes and catacombs. And sometimes you would have to use this bridge to get through a wall. And it was really pretty genius.
1: And then the bat would come and steal the The thing you wanted.
0: Come and steal the thing you wanted. Or or occasionally it it it.
1: would fly away with like a dragon, (laughs) which was funny.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And then basically then you had to go on a quest to find this bat. Yeah. Because the bat had the key to the black castle. Right. And then black castle had, you know, the chalice.
1: Exactly. So it 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 was, it was. Levels of complexity. Also, another really cool thing about Adventure, it's the first video game that I know of to have an Easter egg in it.
0: Yeah, it is the the first game. I'm reading Ready Player One right now. Oh, wow. Fantastic. And, Great. And they talk a little bit about that. Um,
1: There's actually a game inside Ready Player One. Oh, really? Yeah, there was this game within the book itself that if you figured it out, you could win a prize. I can't remember no the way. details. Yeah. That's pretty a, cool. It's actually one of those things where they release the information that that there was stuff hidden in the book, that if you figured it out, would lead you down a pathway where you could wow. win a prize at the end.
0: That's pretty cool. It was,
1: it was a neat idea.
0: Well, and it's a good it's, book anyway. So. yeah, the Easter Egg and adventure though. Um, at the time, and we'll talk about this in a minute with um, uh, developers not getting credit. Yeah, they didn't get credit at the time, and right. so he hid a uh, he hid his name basically. There was this little invisible dot that you could only find in certain rooms, hidden away. And you could pick up this dot and bring it to a certain place, and it would basically take you... It would it would show his name on the screen yeah. as the creator of the game, and it was the very, very first Easter egg. Pretty neat story.
1: Really cool, really cool. I could talk
0: about adventure for the next hour. So we'll have to move on. But we need to go saying? back in time to Space Invaders.
1: Uh, uh, An and instrumentally important video game. One of the most um, popular arcade games to ever come out. In fact, Asteroids, in a way was Atari saying, how can we capitalize on that same kind of level of, yeah. of, of, of obsession?
0: And it was a t- Taito? Taito, yeah. Taito game in the arcade. And um, I think the last we left off with the Home uh, 2600 unit was it wasn't selling super well. Right. Um, and everything changed when they brought uh, licensed. And it was the first licensed game when they licensed Space Invaders. It was a huge hit.
1: Yeah. And also it was a very faithful Port of the game, like it was a good representation of what the arcade game was. You know, it wasn't as as uh, I mean, if you look at a Space Invader ga- game, you're not going to think of it as being slick or sophisticated. But the Atari version was, you know, a little, little slower, a little blockier. Yeah, but
0: it, it was a pretty good version though.
1: Yeah, it was very it, the the gameplay was there. Yeah, the, the important elements were there. And so while it might not have been uh, quite the same experience as the arcade, it was a good representation of it. So. It was a great move on Atari's part, very savvy and ended up really turning things around, started uh, helping with the push to market this. And also we should point out another interesting thing was in the early days Atari's strategy was really to just market around the holidays. Yeah. This was like a Christmas item because it was such an expensive thing. They thought, well, this is big ticket. Right. This is when people are going to be buying something for their kids. It really for Christmas. was.
0: That was when I got my cartridges. I didn't like buy one in June. Yeah. You it, know?
1: it would only be later on when they said, why don't we promote this all year round? Yeah. And that started to really boost the sales too. Also around this time, they were debuting home computer systems, the Atari 400 and the Atari 800. Yeah. Now these were both 8-bit home computers, so, (laughs) you know, keep in mind. They were based around that same microprocessor technology that the Atari 2600 used, although the version that they, that the 2600 used was technically the 6507, which had fewer pins than the 6502 microprocessor. Um, they could only address uh or the VCS rather the the 2600 could only address 8 kilobytes of memory so we're talking really really simple stuff here yeah now between the 400 and the 800 you might wonder what's the difference is the 800 twice as good is it twice as powerful no twice as expensive <laughs> Maybe a little more expensive. Yeah, but it was, this was, uh, these were two of the units that had code names that were named after women in the office. Right. We mentioned that previously. So the 400 was marketed more as a gaming console. Okay. And the 800 was marketed more as a home computer. Gotcha. Uh, so the 400 had essentially the same stuff as the 800, but a lot of it was inaccessible to the user. So right. for example, your memory slots are closed off from uh-huh. the 400. So what you buy out the box is what you get. Whereas the 800 had things where you could swap stuff out.
0: Yeah, I remember seeing that. Yeah, but so, but only to a certain degree. It had like five available slots. Yeah,
1: it wasn't it wasn't like you could just continuously upgrade this. Obviously, the hardware itself had a limitation too. Right. But it did mean that you could uh, customize the 800 more than you could the 400.
0: Which was yeah, big deal at the time. Yeah,
1: so uh 79. Is a big year for them. They make 20 million dollars in 1979.
0: Yeah, the, the 2600 units started basically, you know, they sold 300,000, then 500, then a million, then 2 million. And they basically st- started doubling yeah. every year upon year until in 1982, uh, they hit 10 million in, uh, units sold. Yeah. And for Warner's, they made up 70%. Of their income.
1: 70% of a company that also oversees music and movies.
0: Yeah, that's just crazy.
1: Yeah. The rest of their business was only 30% of their revenue. I mean, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around that. We talk about the video game industry being big today. Yeah. It was enormous back then, relatively speaking. I mean, the pie size is different, obviously.
0: But the portion of the pie was huge. Yeah, unbelievable. 70%. and um. It was that time that the CEO, uh, Kassar started to do some really dumb things. Yeah. Uh, with the company, uh, namely, hey, let's, um, let's lay off some of these developers. Let's shut down the R&D department. Right. And let's sink all our money into marketing this right. stuff. Right.
1: And this was bad timing because, uh, just before he started messing around with the internal structure of the company, there were already defections from Atari, right? You yeah. had, you had four, Engineers from Atari who left the company, and they formed
0: their own company to create games. Want me to name them? Sure, please do. <laughs> David Crane, uh, Bob Whitehead, Alan Miller, and Larry Kaplan. And uh, they formed. David Crane built Pitfall, by the way.
1: Yeah one one of the best games for yeah, the Atari.
0: But they formed. You say it.
1: Activision. Yeah, huge, huge. <laughs> huge. So the, there were two big reasons why they left. One is just that the developers weren't getting a share in the profits made from the games. Yeah, no money. They were being paid, they were being paid on a make this game basis, but if a game was selling really well, they didn't get
0: royalties. No, and they started to see these sales. They're like, I make 20 grand a year.
1: Yeah, I'm the one, I'm the guy that made the thing. That invented it. That, that, that you're selling, and I'm not getting any of that, the proceeds
0: there. Yeah, sort of in a vacuum, like they were, from what I read, sort of singular, uh, creators. They yeah. It wasn't a team of people. Yeah. It was like a dude coming right. up with an idea and then seeing it through.
1: Pretty much every game in these days, you're talking about one person or maybe two people yeah. working on a game, but more often than not, it was a single person per game. The other reason was the one that you had mentioned earlier. They weren't getting any credit for yeah. it, so Nothing. they weren't getting paid, and they weren't their names weren't appearing on the packaging. It wasn't appearing in the game. And they just wanted to have these two elements, things they thought that they were owed. And so they went off and formed Activision with that. And they decided they were going to continue to make games for the Atari. But they obviously wouldn't be Atari games. Like they'd be Activision games for the Atari 2600. And this caused some friction. Atari resisted this. Atari did not want other companies making games for no. its console. Well,
0: Kassar was really PO'd yeah. about the defection to begin with. Yeah. Um I saw an interview with Crane where he said that he, at one point, when they were – at first they went to ask, like, hey, maybe we should get some of this revenue. Yeah. Maybe we can get uh, credit as developers. Yeah and he said you guys aren't any more important than the guy on the assembly line putting these things together. Right. And they were like screw you but Yeah,
1: like guess what? Have fun having that guy exactly. on the assembly line putting together empty cartridges. Yeah. So yeah, they they all leave uh some of the games they create sell better than first party Atari games. Pitfall being a great example of that. Oh uh, yeah. And uh, Atari would sue Activision trying to prevent them from producing Atari 2600 games, but all of that, by 1982, all of that had been decided, third-party games would be completely allowed. Sure. And that was both a good thing and a bad thing for the video game industry. It was a good thing because companies like Activision were making some really good games. Uh-huh. It was a bad thing because anybody else could make whatever crap they
0: wanted to. Oh, man. There were some bad, bad, bad games out yeah. there. Yeah.
1: We'll get to them. Dozens uh, of them. Oh. Uh, One of my favorite games, arcade games, was released in 1980. uh, Two of them, actually. Um, One of them was Missile Command. Loved it. Which, brilliant. Also, one of the things I love about Missile Command is when Atari went to the developers to make Missile Command, they had one demand. Uh Uh-huh. They said, this game can only be a defensive game.
0: That's right, because it was about, essentially, the Cold War. A nu- yeah. And nuclear war. Yeah. And they said, yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to have this be a game where you're dropping nukes on people.
1: No, it can be about we're shooting down missiles to stave off a nuclear attack. Yep. But we're not going to have anything in the game where we launch a counterattack.
0: Yeah. Which and was kind of cool. Missile Command to me still holds up because yeah. the 2600 version was really good. Yep. Uh, it moved it from a trackball in the arcade to the joystick. Yep. Um, but it didn't matter. No, it still worked really well. And, uh, as, as anyone who played Missile Command knows, as you progress through those screens, it gets really, really hard. Yeah, because stuff starts coming down pretty fast.
1: <laughs> so the other big game that came out in 1980, the one that I also loved in the arcades, Battle Zone.
0: Oh man, mind blowing!
1: The dual joystick controllers to control the movement of a tank, yeah. And you know, push both controllers forward to go forward, pull one back to start turning yep. in that direction. It's
0: a 3D. Uh... Uh, what do you call that? Vector graphics. Oh yeah, 3D yeah. vector graphics.
1: Yeah, so what they would do is for vector graphics, you plot two points and it draws a line between those two points. Okay. And then you draw another point, and it draws a line between those. And that's how you could create basic shapes. And they'd be, you know, kind of they, this, this wireframe look yeah. that you would, you know, that was famous for Battlezone and also my favorite Atari arcade game of all time, which comes out in 1983. So I'm going to save it. Uh, but Battlezone, yeah. You're talking about. <laughs> Uh, it also had a scope view for some versions of the game. Not all of them had the scope view. Some of them were just the basic monitor, and then you had the controls. Oh, see,
0: I only played the scope view. So did I. Yeah.
1: Because that, you, you had to put your face up to like a binoculars yeah, yeah. type thing, man. <laughs> and awesome. You're like, you felt oh, like you were in a so tank. And, you, and it, it cuts away all other distractions, yeah, right? Yeah, You don't it was so immersive. see anything. Oh. Yeah, and, and this is a good lesson, too. We talk about immersion in things like uh, virtual reality and talk about how – People say over and over, graphics matters, but they d- it doesn't matter as much as you think it does. Right. That you can feel immersed in something that has very simple graphics if yep. it's a convincing experience.
0: These were green lines. Yep. And uh, it was totally immersive. Yeah. Great, great game. Loved that
1: game. Uh, always just dis- very disruptive as someone would tap on your shoulder while you're in that game. You're like, what's going on? how did yeah. you get in my
0: tank? I never noticed. <laughs> uh, so in
1: 1981, they would come out with another phenomenal arcade game, one of the best in the world. I, I know I keep saying that, but it's absolutely true. Yeah. Tempest.
0: Yeah, that was my favorite game. Uh, none- well, that and Galaga, but, um,
1: those are both great games.
0: Yeah, and Tempest was just, uh, it didn't look like any other game that had come out before it. Um, it the, used the gameplay was different. Full color vector graphics, so it wasn't yeah. just
1: green or white lines. It you was actually amazing. had other colors. Yeah.
0: And uh, it had a feature too. I remember where you could, at the very beginning of the game, you could skip forward. Because um, when you completed different levels in Tempest, you would get mm-hmm. a certain amount of uh, bonus points. Yeah. But you could opt to start later in the game and higher up on a higher level. And. Uh, Immediately, if you finished that one, you had immediately like fifty thousand points.
1: Yeah, because you were you were
0: you were jumping ahead, jumping
1: to a, a level that, mere mortals such as myself could not hope to complete. Yeah,
0: it was tough though, man. It's still tough. You get spiked, buddy. Well, yeah, because
1: I mean, you know, you you're doing like. That's task management right there. Yeah. You know, figuring out, okay, well, this is the one that moves around in a circle as it climbs up, so I gotta keep an eye on that one. But this other one is one that shimmies up super fast, so I gotta get that one first, that yep. kind of stuff. and
0: you can only fire and burst. Yep. I remember it wasn't like a continuous fire game.
1: Yeah. And, uh, man, you would just see people just spinning that disc like crazy to get the Tempest to, you know, the, the ship to go around to the right part of the, the board in order to, to shoot so when you, the enemies.
0: Yeah, or when you warp to the next, um, when you warp to the next one, I remember that was where you had to avoid the spikes yeah. to the next level. Yeah, And sometimes uh, that was just luck of the draw.
1: <laughs> the other big game that came out in 1981 in the arcades, Centipede.
0: Yeah, Centipede was huge um, because it appealed to women and yep. uh, girls. Mm-hmm. And it was very colorful, very fun. It had a great gameplay with the rollerball. Yep. Really maximized that. And I think it was the first game actually written and developed by a woman.
1: Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's yeah. cool. That's super cool. Well, 1981 was also when Atari would show off the Cosmos. That was that handheld game that used holography that we talked about previously. They showed it at the New York Toy Fair. They ended up accepting 8,000 pre-orders. But by the end of 1981, Atari would reverse its decision to release the game console. The project is canceled. So we never get to see what the Cosmos actually looks like. Um that's Which, a farmer. Yeah, I'm very curious how this holographic type stuff was supposed to work. From what I understand, like the description I read was that you would only get two different images and it wasn't, it wasn't, um, uh, important for gameplay. And I thought, well, what is important for gameplay? Like maybe there's like a permanent type screen and, and whatever you're looking at is interacting with the quote unquote holographic yeah. image. Uh, which would be kind of like some of the overlays that that existed for other game systems where you would have to put an overlay either on the controller or sometimes on your TV. That's so (laughs) Um, weird. Yeah, it's very bizarre. Uh, 1982, Atari would launch Dig Dug
0: in the arcades. Love Dig Dug. Big fan.
1: Yep. And it also distributed one of Namco's games, a very popular game, Pole Position.
0: Yeah. So Atari is basically um, kicking butt on two levels here. Uh, They're owning... Um, well, they're sharing ownership in the arcade along with the big boys. Yep. Um, and they're, uh, kind of owning the home system at this point. Yeah. Um, they have, you know, some competition with ColecoVision. Yep. And Intellivision. television, mm-hmm. Which were both, uh, I think more advanced with the controls and some of the graphics. Right. But Atari had such a stranglehold on people at that point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. it was tough to kind of put a chink in their armor. I mean,
1: they, they just, they defined the market. Yeah. Right. Intellivision was interesting because it was, uh, this was one that had overlays, like I was talking about. So not necessarily for the screen, but for your controller. The yeah, controller, I those. it looked kind of like a remote control with a little, uh, joystick at the base. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it had a wheel that you could snap a joystick onto. And oh, okay. Then, uh, so the joystick would move the wheel around, which in turn operated whatever, you know, sent the commands to the game system. And then you had a number pad, but you had little overlays you would slide into the number pad depending upon what game you were playing so that it would tell you, you know, which number corresponds to what command
0: yeah I remember Intellivision television was for me the uh the rich kid game because they were the only ones that whose parents would let them get a new one yeah everyone else's parents were like, You've got the Atari I think and I get, that's that's you're not going to get a different game now.
1: I inherited it in television from my uh cousin sometime around like the late eighties, so well after yeah. the, well after <laughs> there was nothing else coming out for it right this that that game system had been dead, yeah sure, so the things i had and it was funny because the collection i games of games i had and the collection of overlays i had it was kind of like a venn diagram with about 40% coverage yeah. <laughs> and then like there was overlap of 40% and then for everything else i either had an overlay for a game that sounded awesome but i didn't have it right. or a game where i'm like i have no idea what these buttons are supposed to do that's funny but at any rate uh, getting back to atari 1982 was also when some some things happened that would end up hurting the company uh, in the near future one is that they rushed a home video game port of a smash hit in the arcades pac-man
0: can i do my impression now please do oh, that it hurts w- that, it really sounded about that bad it, yeah
1: yeah Yeah, it
0: didn't look like Pac-Man. It didn't sound like Pac-Man. It barely played like Pac-Man. I mean, you had a
1: maze and you ate dashes instead of dots, and ghosts would chase after you. They wouldn't turn blue if you ate a power pellet. They would just start flashing.
0: Yeah. Um, and it it didn't sound like it. The colors weren't even the same. It was. The controller was terrible. Yeah, they botched it on almost every single level. But I was one of those kids. Who bought it on Christmas Day? Yeah, that year because it was the most exciting thing to to come out.
1: Well, Pac-Man was groundbreaking in their case. Like, yeah, we had a whole song about it.
0: It was legit.
1: It was a dance and everything. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It it uh it, it, the the worst thing to me is that they could have done it right because later on yeah. Atari Twenty Six Hundred released a Ms. Pac-Man. Which actually wasn't bad.
0: Yeah, that's one of the one of the better games, actually.
1: Yeah, it's kind of crazy that Ms. Pac-Man was, you know, it just showed that they could have done it better, but they rushed it through, and uh, that ended up being a big a big downside. Now, it it sold well. They, oh, yeah. I think, they produced twelve million copies, and they sold seven million of them, or something.
0: Yeah, they at the time there were ten million twenty six hundred units, and they said every single person is going to buy one. And then two million more people will go out and buy a twenty six hundred to play Pac Man. Right. That is some hubris. Yeah. Friend.
1: And then when the, it
0: backfired in a big way.
1: Word comes around that the game's not so good. People started to put the brakes on that. But they also in nineteen eighty two released Yar's Revenge. That was the one that uh, took. That was a good game. Though. Yeah, it was a good game, and it, it took Ray uh, Kasar's name and reversed the first <laughs> three. The reverse Ray to Yar. Yeah, they eventually
0: um, would ship. I remember um the twenty six hundred with Pac Man. Yeah. Instead of combat. That's how low it fell.
1: Right. I'm glad I got <laughs> it was the I'm free. I'm glad game. I got mine in the combat <laughs> yeah, days. Yeah, me too. Uh so the game Yar's Revenge was developed by a guy named Howard Scott Warshaw, who also uh, developed two other games that are notable. One is one we talked about before. The Indiana Jones Raiders Lost Art game was developed by him.
0: Which was fun, but yeah. totally uh uh, confounding. Yeah. It was was a hard game to play. It
1: was. I I, I was talking to Chuck before we recorded. In fact, I was talking to you earlier this week about how... um, I played that game a lot and I remember being stuck on the first couple of screens for a really like a snake would come out of a, behind a rock and bite me and I'd die. Yeah. And and I <laughs> I think, well, I've got this gun, but I'm almost certain this gun's gonna be important for something else, so if I shoot the snake, is that a good idea? Should I should I whip the snake to yeah. death?
0: <laughs> well, and and you it was the first game where you used both joysticks to play. Yeah. And um the first game I think where you could pick up multiple things and had like an inventory yeah. uh, it was just really confusing yeah. um, and and challenging, but confusing. Yeah.
1: When I finally watched a playthrough, that was maybe a year ago, I watched a playthrough You're of like, it. Oh. Yeah. I kept thinking. <laughs> well, no. As I was watching, I was like, oh, yeah, I got that far. Because okay, I kept forgetting how far I got. I just yeah. remembered the frustration of not knowing what was going on. Yeah. But I realized later on that I actually played that game, if not to completion, nearly to completion. <laughs> I, thought, I don't know wow, if I ever I finished I really it. stuck with that game.
0: Yeah. Stop.
1: Dorshaw is probably most famous
0: oh, poor guy.
1: for a game that is often talked about as being the worst video game ever made. In fact, Tech Stuff, we did an episode about the worst games ever made, and this was number one on our list oh, really? because it was voted on by the listeners. Yeah. E.T. the Extraterrestrial.
0: Yeah, I saw a list that um, did not even list it in the top ten worst yeah. because they're saying it, it gets unnecessarily ribbed yeah. even though it is bad. Yeah people don't know about the worst of the worst games well, that were produced by these third-party companies. E.T.
1: was produced by Atari, yeah. right? This was not one of those little third-party... You know, Probably could, the
0: worst Atari game, for sure.
1: I could tell you what the worst... I What I think, at least from a concept point of view, what the worst game that was made for the Atari... Too no, no. Custer's Revenge.
0: Oh, I don't think I knew that one.
1: You, you need to look that up yeah. later. And for all my listeners who are furiously looking up Custer's Revenge Atari 2600 I'm sorry it is a racist misogynistic (laughs) game that uses awful graphics to depict um violating Indian
0: ladies oh my god yeah
1: no there was a third party that made and because Atari didn't have a process yeah to uh to approve or deny games on its system People could make stuff like that.
0: Sure. So or, it, or companies, like I said, Kool-Aid, could say, hey, let's make a game that's sort of a TV commercial. Yeah,
1: exactly. We can make a commercial that's interactive and convince people to buy our stuff more. Yeah. And we can even make it so that the only way you can get this game is by buying our stuff and sending proof of purchase in to yeah. get the
0: game. Just to play a crappy game. Yeah.
1: Well, at any rate, E.T. was a huge setback for the company. They had spent an enormous amount of money to get the license, like between 20 and $25 million.
0: Yeah, for for uh, Spielberg to give that up uh, was a big deal.
1: Yeah, they produced 4 million copies of the game, mm-hmm. and about 3.5 million were returned to Atari, either unsold or people had returned their copy to the game store.
0: Yeah, and the legend, and I should say, I've never, ever played it.
1: Yeah. Oh, I, uh, I don't have. know
0: why it got by <laughs> me because I was so into all that and I yeah. love DT. I don't know. Maybe I heard it was crappy and I just don't remember, but I never played it. Um, but then the story gets kind of interesting because for many, many years there was, uh, what was thought to be an urban legend that Atari took those and other games and buried them in a landfill in New Mexico yep. and covered it with concrete. Right. Um, and for many years that was like, no, that's just an urban legend. Right. But wasn't it last year that they finally dug them up?
1: It was actually, uh, April, yeah, April 2014. And it was true. Yeah. (laughs) They found, in fact, part of the legend at one point was saying, all right, yes, they did it, but first they crushed all the games. So all they're going to end up finding is black plastic and pieces of of circuitry. Not true though. No, they found full, intact cartridges. Whether or not they still play is another question. They sold some of them.
0: Yeah. And the truest irony, those things were fetching some good money on eBay
1: man it makes me wish Isn't i had held funny? on to my copy and just put a little dirt on it and then yeah, said like exactly. straight from new mexico it may still play um uh, yeah but uh cuz granted psychological scars never heal but the money would have helped
0: right <laughs> yeah so so that was not the death knell for atari no, as some people like to say but um i saw one writer put it it may have been the final straw
1: yeah i think i think it's a great Thing to point out as a symbol of the the issues that were that came about with the video game crash, but that's way more complex. Also, this is 1982 we're talking about. The video game crash happened in 83. So yeah, there's
0: two big flops, though, with Pac-Man and E.T. Yeah. And a lot of money, you know, if Atari hadn't squandered money elsewhere, they could have survived the financial impact of both of these flops.
1: Right. So and they,
0: they didn't themselves kill it off.
1: On top of that, we have the added problem that Atari was trying to push a new system onto the market the Atari 5200 super system coming out in 1982 it was based off the 400/800 line of atari computers uh the controllers had a joystick and a number pad uh they were big and hard to use yeah. and they broke pretty easily but the the joystick was interesting like the old uh atari joysticks were 8 point uh, analog joysticks Um, which meant that it it could only detect if the joystick was pressing down on any of those eight points. Right. This one was a 360-degree analog joystick, giving you much more precise control, but it was also non-centering. There was no spring to have it move back to the center. Yeah,
0: they had a lot of problems with the joystick. Yeah. Uh, And apparently Atari um, had so many problems with the joystick, while the game was released, in release, they they tried and reshipped, like, I don't know how many versions of the joystick, like six or eight different versions. Yeah.
1: Well, and on top of that, it couldn't play 2600 games. So if,
0: if it, you are- That already, was a really big deal.
1: Yeah, if you had your library of games, I mean, we all, we, anyone who plays video games knows about issues with backwards compatibility. Yeah. We love it when a system is backwards compatible with earlier systems, and we hate it when it's not. Because you spend all this money, uh, accruing a library sure. of games, and you don't, you know, you only have so many options to hook things up to your TV. You don't want to negate all that. So, uh, another blow against it was that the 5200 games, in large part, were just updates of 2600 games. Yeah. So then you have to buy the same game twice. You have to buy a new, which people who buy, who have the Xbox One are probably laughing right now because that's what's happening over there. Oh, really? <laughs> also the PS4. Yeah, several of the games that have come out for the PS4 and the Xbox One over the last year or so. Have been uh, a remasters of games that came out for the previous systems. Like Grand Theft Auto Five is coming out this year uh, for Xbox One.
0: Um, are they uh, not any better?
1: Well, they're higher quality graphics. Okay. Sometimes there's also some added gameplay elements, so it's not the exact same game. It is an enhancement, but it does mean that if you had an Xbox 360 and a copy of Grand Theft Auto Five, now are you going to go and purchase a, a Grand Theft Auto Five for your Xbox One? Because yeah. Even with the enhancements, there's something in your brain that's saying, you bought this once already. Right. You know? <laughs> sure. Like, you know, yeah, it might have more stuff in it, but you still did buy it already. Uh, this was also the year when Pitfall came out. So insult to injury for Atari because they're yeah. having all these issues. And, and meanwhile, Activision puts out Pitfall. Also, Jay Miner, who designed the Atari 800 chipset, left Atari to design a, a new computer called the Amiga which was based off a similar uh, chipset idea. Um, and that was originally going to be a video game console, but was reimagined as a general purpose computer because now we're in 1983, the video game market comes crashing down. Yeah, Especially the home video game market, specifically the home video game market. And TechStuff did a full episode on the great video game crash. Uh, we're still going to talk about some because obviously it was monumentally important in the history of of Atari, part of the issue was that you had this enormous number of crappy games coming from all these third-party uh, uh, companies. Plus, Atari had already made some really bad first-party games, like the Pac-Man yeah. version and the ET game.
0: So, well, not only that, not just the games, but there were um, there was console overload yeah. as well. There yeah. were, I mean, if you look at the the list of the console games that came out, uh, that were just Barely even made a register in the market. Right. Uh, it was just, it was flooded with, you know, it was just a glut of bad games, bad consoles. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, we talked about the Intellivision, the ColecoVision and the Atari 2600 and 5200. There were lots of other consoles that had hit the market because everyone saw this as a way to make huge amounts of money. I mean, Atari had proven that this was a multi-million dollar industry and everyone wanted a piece of that. But the problem was now you had a glut of consoles and games. It was, there was confusion in the marketplace. I mean, imagine Chuck for a moment, yeah. your parents going to the toy store. Oh, sure. And thinking, this is the game he wants. And it says in television across the top, not Atari. Yeah. And they buy it, not knowing that this was for a totally different game console system. I mean, it was, and not only that, we had all these elements. You also had the burgeoning personal computer market. Yeah.
0: That's the thing. It wasn't like the, the, Home tech was, uh, was bottoming out. Right. Computers were more popular than ever and they started to market, hey, you can play games and do home computing yeah. on these things. Yeah. So why just get this? console that just plays games right you could like, get this, this is going to be the thing of the past
1: exactly you could get this thing that let, lets your kids waste hours and hours staring at the tv as they move a little dot around or you could get our thing which lets them play games that they want to but it also lets them do their homework
0: yeah exactly and
1: you can do your taxes and all this kind of stuff and i mean it was a very compelling argument so this combination of events caused the the market to just bottom out you had stories of games discounting, or, or ga- stores like toy stores discounting games, putting them in bargain bins where you get like, you know, a dollar or two bucks to oh, get, yeah. to pick up these cartridges. I was
0: buying them up too, man.
1: Yeah, so was I. Uh, quality was not an issue. I was like, I want quantity. <laughs> yeah, me too. Because if the um, game
0: stunk, you paid two bucks for it. you yeah, just don't play it you know, that much. You know, like,
1: all right, well, you know, that was I mowed the lawn for that. Yeah, but the, <laughs> the lawn will regrow, and That's I will right. mow it again. That's Um, and, uh, also Atari made another dumb mistake, uh, which I can't completely blame them for. All right. So there were some issues that happened. Uh, the video game crash, the ET plan, the Pac-Man plan. There was also supposedly some questionable stock dealings that led Atari to the board of directors to fire the CEO, Ray Kassar.
0: Yeah. And I don't know if Kassar was, he had not made the best moves for that company anyway. Yeah. So it wasn't like Bushnell leaving. No. But, um, it was, it definitely made the company unstable.
1: Yeah. So he was pushed out. Uh, a guy named James J. Morgan would take over as CEO. But here was something else that was going on behind the scenes at Atari that could have totally helped the company coast through the video game crash and rise to new heights. There was a company in Japan a company that started out Selling playing cards. Yeah, that's how it started. It made a game console in Japan, uh, referred to as the Famicom. We know it as the Nintendo Entertainment System. And in 1983, Nintendo and Atari were in talks for Atari to be the United States distributor. Yeah. Of the Famicom Entertainment
0: System. Yeah, they said we'll we'll keep Japan. Yeah. Atari's big over there. You guys do a great job. Let's partner up.
1: Yeah, you can put your branding on it. We'll have it all planned out. It'll be a partnership. And Nintendo was moving forward with it, or Atari and Nintendo were moving forward with this. But there were a couple of things that caused some hiccups. One of them was that Coleco was shipping the ColecoVision with Donkey Kong. Donkey Kong is a Nintendo game. And Mm. under this agreement, this partnership agreement, Atari was supposed to get exclusive rights to Nintendo games. Right. And so the fact that a uh, a Nintendo game was appearing on a Coleco product caused this deal to slow down. Meanwhile, Kassar, who was kind of the the moving force of this deal, this could have been his redemption. Oh, yeah. He's fired. Now there's no one at the ship who was actually in charge of this deal. And yeah, that made fizzles. Nintendo
0: really nervous.
1: Yeah. And there's no one for them to talk to anymore. Yeah. So they said, you know what? We're going to try this ourselves. We're going to... Uh, work on this and in a couple of years we're going to launch in the united states under our own brand name and that's what they did but with just a couple of changes in history atari could have been
0: nintendo nintendo yeah isn't that crazy yeah
1: it could have been the atari entertainment system yeah and and uh and by the way, the reason it's called the entertainment system is because by that point, Nintendo had seen the video game market crashed and there was yeah. now this kind of stigma against video games. So they said, let's call it an entertainment system. We won't call it a video game system and we'll make it look very, you know, boxy. And... Yeah, like
0: your VCR. Yeah. And, and it'll sit on the shelf and your parents won't mind it. It won't look like some crazy game.
1: Right. And very savvy move. Yeah. As it turns out, Nintendo made all the right decisions there. So really rough times for Atari. Uh, and this is also when the arcade branch of Atari released the licensed first person space simulator game that's my favorite arcade game of all time. Chuck, what do you think it is?
0: Oh gee, I don't know.
1: It's a first person game. First person? It's a space setting, vector graphics, voices from a movie. Oh, Licensed. Star Wars! Yes, yeah, of my course.
0: favorite arcade game really? of all time, Star Wars. Yeah, you know, I didn't. Oddly enough, I didn't play that that much.
1: I if I found an arcade that had the cockpit version, oh uh, well, yeah. where you sat down and you held onto that yoke, yeah, and the music would come up, and sure. you know, keep in mind, guys, this is not like orchestra-level music, but it sounded good at the time. Yeah, it was uh,
0: chiptunes. And
1: it actually had the voices of the actors in there, too. You would hear Obi-Wan say, The Force will be with you always. Right in your head. I loved this game without reservation. My favorite game of all time. If I could actually find a version of this...
0: I would buy it for you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, the hardest thing would be talking to my wife and saying, you know, where are we going to put this <laughs> yeah. in the limited space in our house? I know it would have to go in my office. I just don't know how I would make room in there. You'd make room. I would make room. I couldn't get the cockpit version. That would be way too big. I'd have to get the stand up version. But hey, if you've got a stand up cabinet version of Star Wars, you're looking to unload and it works. <laughs> let me know or let Chuck know because he's going to buy it for yeah. me. Um, also, uh, two other games would get Atari to release them in Europe, not in the United States. The United States had a different distributor. Yeah. But there were two other games that were really important in the history of video games, Dragon's Lair and Space Ace.
0: Yeah, Dragon's Lair I remember was uh that was the first game that used um laserdisc. Yeah, it was it was the graphics, yeah. I mean, I don't It was animated. It was like a cartoon. Yeah. yeah,
1: Don Bluth did all the animation. Uh he he was a Disney animator for a long time. Did worked on Oliver and Company and a couple yeah. of other game uh movies. Also did uh Fiveol, the five old movies, like American Tale, Those. Yeah,
0: the gameplay I remember wasn't great though. No, because you couldn't really control uh, live. wasn't Didn't you make moves and then it would play it out? Yeah, the way like the way
1: it would work is there would be a moment where you had to put in a command, yeah. whether it was left, right, up, down, or sword swing, whatever. Uh, and if you didn't do it at the exact time right. with the right move, you died. And if you did, you would progress to the next scene, and it would essentially play out like a cartoon. yeah.
0: I remember now. I remember thinking, man, that looks amazing. Yeah. Let me put my quarter in, and then saying, "This sucks. I'm going to play Galaga."
1: Right. <laughs> well, you'd you'd put your your four quarters in, right? Because that oh, was one yeah. of the really expensive. It was either I think it actually might have been the first game to go fifty cents.
0: Well, it was it was tokens though at the time. Yeah, oh, there you because go. Because I remember yeah, you would uh, go on Tuesdays to Battlezone, and you would get uh, like twenty <laughs> tokens for a dollar. I remember what it was, like, was the, it? The good deal going. What
1: was the one the? Gold Nuggets, something like that. There was, there was one that, uh, in I Atlanta? went In Atlanta? There was, I think it was in Gwinnett, actually.
0: Oh, okay. Um, cause Oh, I, oh, no. North Lake Mall had the, the, uh, gold mine. Gold mine. That's yeah. it. Gold mine.
1: Yeah, that was one of the
0: great mall arcades. Yeah. In, in Atlanta in the Fantastic. 1980s. Fantastic.
1: <laughs> well, you know what? We.
0: This is gonna be a three-parter. It's gonna be a three-parter.
1: <laughs> we, we talked about the possibility of it being a three-parter at and the here beginning. We are. And, uh, we are now 55 minutes in. And we still have the rest of atari we we just hit nineteen eighty three but here's here's the good news, folks from nineteen eighty four to the present day uh, a lot of stuff happens, but we don't have a whole lot to say about each individual part. yeah, we just have to explain what goes on from a corporate level. but I think we can clearly say that the video game crash if you don't consider uh Bushnell selling Atari to Warner as being its first death. This has got to be the first death because the company was absolutely devastated by this. Uh The arcade business was still going fairly well, but the home video game market completely bottomed out. So when we pick up, we'll pick up in 1984 when another dramatic moment, another death of Atari happens immediately. And then we'll just have the sad tale yeah. of, of sinking lower and lower from that point forward. So for those of you out there who want to know how some other technological thing works that's not Atari and you're looking forward to hearing about it, you need to let me know first. Send me an email. My address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. The handle at all three is hsw. You can find Mr. Chuck Bryant with Stuff You Should Know. That's right. And you should because it's an awesome show. Thank you. You are welcome. And we will talk to you again really soon.